0: Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand.
1: And I'm Michael Beirut.
0: The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air.
1: So there have been uh, some losses recently that uh, have affected a lot of people, including me. Um, One is uh, uh, David Bowie, who died at the age of 69. I was actually surprised by how big an effect his death had on me and I immediately thought back to uh, when I was growing up in suburban Cleveland we had a uh, we had a nationally known progressive rock station WMMS that was known for breaking international acts in the United States and when Ziggy Stardust was released as an album that was all over the airwaves and I remember hearing that music first uh, Starman Suffragette City Uh, hang on to yourself. Then I uh, saw the images of Bowie as the progenitor of the glam rock movement, um, Ziggy Stardust, and the theatricality and the androgyny was so it was it was, it was literally shocking to me. I remember like just being so disoriented by the disconnect between the straight up Cleveland rust belt rock and roll that I heard and the visual presentation of the musician. I remember kids in my high school, kids I hung around with, who 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 would have been suspicious of this guy had he uh, shown up at the shopping mall just kind of completely embracing him in every one of his expressions as a uh, persona. And it's just and I think Bowie did that his whole life.
0: It's hard to remember at a time now where you know there's we're watching Carol and the Danish girl and transparent and the, the sort of gender uh, porousness of the way people present themselves uh, is now something that's very much of this moment. It's hard to remember but you, you make a good point that, that the androgyny with which he presented himself in public as a musician in the 70s uh, was really something that was quite shocking and quite unusual at, at that moment
1: and I think that ability to sort of transcend or subvert, genre has just kind of continued his whole career. The the next kind of striking memory i have of bowie it dates to an internship that i had uh between high school and college where i was working in downtown cleveland actually in the inner city of cleveland a neighborhood into which i had never ventured as a white suburbanite before i was i, I, re, I remember so distinctly i was in a car with um uh, uh with one of my supervisors who was this um impossibly hip black guy who uh um who i really sort of came to look to as a, uh, a kind of expert on uh On culture in general and the radio was playing and suddenly um, Young Americans by David Bowie came on and he just turned it up all the way and said yeah David Bowie man and like then the whole car was like rocking out uh you know like who else could do that it just was amazing and so it wasn't just gender it was race it was so many different things and he really did perceive himself I think as a very self-consciously as a total design product. You know, it wasn't just the music; it was the public presentation, it was the album covers, the stage shows, everything. And with each phase, in sort of this Picasso-like ability to continually reinvent himself, he did it not just uh, in one genre and not just in one medium, but in so many.
0: So four days after we lost David Bowie, we lost another great performer, in this case an actor, Alan Rickman, who was also 69 years old, also uh, British, also died of cancer, and like David Bowie, came out of uh, a very working-class culture in Britain. Uh, Rickman is perhaps best known for his uh, role as Severus Snape, with the marvelous voice, the kind of raspy Uh, monotone, terrifying, brilliant uh, performance he gave in all of the Harry Potter movies. Uh, But our listeners may not know that you, Michael, in addition to your many other polymath capabilities, are a huge Die Hard fan. So I'm I'm guessing you're going to want to talk a little bit about Rickman's performance in Die Hard.
1: Well, um, I've I've often thought when we run our course with um, the observatory, I would like to undertake a personal podcast where I talk week after week just about Die Hard and approach it from every possible angle. And I could probably do that for 10 to 20 years once a week because I'm, I'm totally obsessed with it. I've probably seen it maybe 50 times. It's one of those movies that if I turn on the TV and it's on, I basically, I don't have to watch it to the end, but I have to at least, I'll, I'll sort of say, okay, I'm going to watch it up to this point. I know it by heart. I know every scene. and
0: We all have one of those movies, don't we? Minus the American president.
1: <laughs> I, I, I like that one too. What's great about Die Hard is that it actually has this, um, you know, amazing unity of place and time. It all happens, you know, in a single office building. And there's been really interesting essays written uh, uh, about the um, about the architectural character of the film, where the hero, the ostensible hero, Bruce Willis, kind of, he's able to kind of like crawl through air ducts and crash in and out of windows just kind of like permeating this building in every way except the way it was intended to be entered and exited but the real star of course is not Bruce Willis but the extraordinary uh, arch villain um, Hans Gruber played by Rickman who just has one uh, fantastic line after another all of which are delivered with such kind of glittering charismatic allure by Rickman who you know? Who um, supposedly was dubious when he first got the script, and then uh, just really sinks his teeth into it with such gusto when he says. Um well, we could talk about industrialization and men's fashions all day long, but unfortunately, work must intrude. And then he um, demands the uh, you know the code to the uh, vault in which all the money he's trying to steal is. And when it's not given, he says, I'll count to three. And he just says, we well, have to shoot me then. He just he says, OK, and then he shoots him.
0: He really was somebody who was known for, for understatement. I mean, there's something kind of just delicious about someone who can professionalize the art of understatement. He was Judge Turpin in uh, the the, uh, Sweeney Todd, the Tim Burton version of the Sweeney Todd movie that starred Johnny Depp. Uh, in fact, he did several projects with, um, with Tim Burton, who, of course, is a very visual guy. And so the, the degree to which there's this kind of, you know, he really just became this person you started to see in these very disguised roles, but always with that voice and always with that very particular kind of, of, of a sneering, uh, understatement, but just delivered impeccably.
1: Uh, and our listeners may be surprised to know or not that, uh, yeah. <sighs> Alan Rickman actually studied design and worked for three years as a graphic designer before becoming an actor.
0: So you know, I could have a podcast for the next 20 years on people who were graphic designers before they became fill in the blank. You know, and before I became a brain surgeon, I was a graphic designer.
1: Yeah, and and and, and that's where that's something he has in common with um, with David Bowie as well. Uh, Bowie uh, didn't go to art school, but he did go to a um, polytechnical you know high school that had a, a vocational class and studied layout and type setting and calligraphy and stuff like that. Um, and clearly that had an effect and per- perhaps opened that door to him to uh, uh, kind of explore the visual side of his craft as well as the uh, musical side.
0: There is a great book that came out in the late 80s by uh, a guy called Simon Frith. Uh, Frith himself actually was educated I think at Oxford and at Berkeley. So, you know, very much the product of the the, the pedigree that was not these... these uh, The two people we're talking about right now, these who came from working class backgrounds and went to art school, uh, these post-war British art schools provided Britain with a a different kind of social opportunity um, uh, and and really came out of, of, uh, I think, had an important role at, at really representing something that was an alternative to higher education. Britain, of course, being having a class distinction system that is very different than what we have in the United States. Um, and always has been, I think, kind of lived at the fulcrum between high and low. So here were these schools that offered these different kinds of opportunities. Um, there's a great article uh, I I came upon um, that that you may have read also, Michael, uh, in which uh, these two writers describing this moment in British art school talked about the the school being kind of a refuge for working class malingerers uh, and the institutionally maladjusted. But he also talked about them as, and I think this comes back, interestingly, to Bowie and Rickman and to our discussion today, which is that they were what he called, what these people called lateral thinkers. Right? So their capacity to go from one discipline to another, to find forms of expression that were, you know, in the 70s, one thing, in the 80s, another, that that Rickman played different roles, of course, that were made available to him by the scripts that came his way. But in Bowie's case, in terms of that serial reinvention, it's interesting to kind of, you know, posit that that the, the being the product of a working class family and the result of an art school education at that time gave him something that really, you know, helped him resist what would have been a much more clearly class-defined and role-defined and discipline-defined professional career.
1: Yeah, and um, and uh, I find this really, really fascinating, because I think it's very different from the way we think of um, specialized art schools here in the United States, that going all the way back to the late 19th century, um, Britain sort of perceived Art education as really a vocational kind of trade education that was an alternative, as you said, to uh, uh, university education, which would have uh, prepared um, you know young men and young ladies for the professions and uh, access to which would have required you know good grades and uh, and real diligence. And um, you know the art school movement was really a uh, uh, an alternative to that, an alternative that, as you say, was a means by which uh, working class kids could, you know, learn a useful trade and make themselves useful to society. And it's uh, Rickman, um, Bowie, you know, John Lennon, Keith Richards, like a whole long list of people were able to kind of, you know, kind of go through a trapdoor and end up in a completely different world, partly because of that. And right now, um, that's very much in the minds of um, and in the air in the UK because of um, you know, austerity and things that really started um, back under Thatcher. The Those independent schools have been getting folded up into universities. The um, uh, tuitions have been going up. The idea that uh, art school is something that is a an accessible thing rather than a luxury to be viewed with a certain amount of suspicion, which I think is, is very much still the way that uh, a lot of people look at it today in the United States. That's, Something, that's something very much that's in the air there now.
0: Very much so, and I think this role, this idea of artist practice coming out of a discipline, and as you say, a technical vocational education, also, you know, at this moment, kind of in the late part of the 20th century, there was this deviation to, I think, a more open-minded idea of of the romance of living as an artist and practicing, not as someone who worked in industry and came out of the sort of William Morris tradition of, of, uh, of industry, but to really look at it in terms of inquiry, right, and the process of inquiry. So art school training had to, on the one hand, give you this basis for skill production, for uh, learning the rudiments of whatever it was you wanted to do. And in many cases, these were things like ceramics and and, and uh, uh, architecture, uh, design, um, uh, art practice, fashion, all, all those sort of design, r- related design disciplines still had and have uh, disciplinary basis uh, points on which they're meant to be taught. But it was this sort of wider uh, uh, training that was matched by a moment of, of social change and social turbulence. And, and maybe that's the moment when the subculture was able to come out of its own kind of capitalist basis and, and become something that had more to do with, you know, how, how somebody coming out of a marginal social group, whether that was working class England or wanting to be, a, you know, uh, androgynous was, uh, you know, found favor in the late 70s and 80s. Yeah,
1: and I think um, this really is an um, interesting answer to anyone who sort of like says, well, you know, what's art education good for? It really can turn out unique sensibilities and personalities that I can't imagine emerging from many other millions. Use. Bowie gets credit for being someone who conceived of you know his own presentation and the world of creativity is sort of having no limits being visual as well as uh, musical as well as performance based. Um, Rickman, who I think is you know revered as an actor, the, the last thing he did was it's, it's sort of this amazing piece of uh, conceptual art for a charity where it's a voiceover, of a video of a turtle eating a strawberry the 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 gimmick is that if you watch the video it gets uh clicks and the more clicks it gets the more advertising revenue uh it generates uh through youtube and they give all the advertising revenue to um uh, to save the children and the refugee council Um, and as of right now it's got two million clicks and uh you know, it's sort of just a piece of abstract um, art in a way, you know, that's just about itself and kind of conceived so brilliantly. But just I can't imagine anyone kind of doing a voiceover as beautifully as Rickman does for this thing. So, um, you know, two great artists really with capital A's uh, and who both are uh, uh, testaments to uh, anyone who is 14 years old thinking of going to art school and wondering where they might end up. You know, you could end up like one of these guys. All you need to do is watch and share. Together you and this tortoise can make a difference.
0: Next month, on the 12th of February, Design Observer is holding a symposium in Los Angeles. It's called Taste. Uh, It's on the subject of food and visual culture. Uh, and the intersection between those two really fascinating and very deeply interconnected uh, worlds. Just added to our program, i um, very excited to announce Scott Palmer, the founder of something called Kiva Confections, and designer Nathan Sharp, uh, who worked with him to create the packaging and, and sort of identity for uh, these confections, which are, hold on to your seat, Michael, cannabis-infused chocolates. Is that legal? It's medicinally legal. There These you are, uh, you know, uh, who doesn't want their doctor pr- to prescribe chocolate for them? I certainly have waited for that my whole life. Um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, of so course, said, the bigger. So you're just in it for the chocolate. Yeah, I so really like that. Others
0: may come for the green part. I, on the other hand, just I'm all about, I'm all about the sugar. Yeah, yeah. It's sort um, of like, yeah,
1: p- yeah, please, please prescribe cannabis for me because I need an excuse to eat chocolate. I really like really? it. Really? Well done. It, 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 okay. it, it, it works
0: both ways. actually. Uh, But really, the bigger question here is how how does design shape what we consume? And how do we come to think about that experience? And the the title of the conference, Taste, I think, really gets at this in a big way. Because, of course, uh, I've always joked that um, I want to write a book called uh, There's No Accounting for Taste, and we've all had clients who think they know better than we do, and we think we know better than they do. So taste for a graphic designer, for for anyone who works in the visual world, uh, is really a question of what is the appropriate visual expression of an idea. How does form reinforce content in a way that the professional visual person knows how to uh, sort of take it t- uh, there uh, but it's also obviously about what we consume, uh, what the palate consumes, what are our cultural patterns of consumption, what we think about when we eat, how we source food, how we forage for food, how we brand food. Uh, we've got a lot of really amazing speakers uh, talking about everything from uh, the crisis over the lack of a national policy for food security to, you guessed it, cannabis-infused chocolate.
1: No, it's a, it's an unbelievably rich subject for a... Uh, Uh, for a design conference Uh, you know and I think what makes it so fascinating isn't just the easy parts well it's partly the easy things that I think you know all of us are aware of you know menu design is interesting packaging you know product pack food packaging can be you know deliriously and suspiciously manipulative and everything else but I think at the end of the day um, you know eating is something all of us do and there are very few human activities where I think the range of expressions, and I'd even rate them as design expressions, related to that simple activity is so varied. You can say we all need to wear clothes, we all need to sleep under roofs, so architecture and fashion design can vary. But if you just think about how, you know, on a single busy urban block in any city in the world, You know, if you want to eat something, you can probably address that need. You can answer that need in so many different ways. Um, And those differences are really just about human imagination. You know, I mean, because the the actual uh, uh, physical requirement to consume calories and nutrients and etc is basically we know what that involves and it's basically you know probably there's like just a handful of pills that would do that trick everything else we do on top of that is something we've done that's a unique expression of human imagination you and human creativity and, and to
0: the extent that there are many designers who are occupying themselves with bigger deeper broader questions about what impacts people's lives. There are designers working to create new kinds of material uh, solutions for 3D printing of food. There are designers who are recycling uh, things like mushrooms and uh, food waste to create building materials. There are designers working at the intersection of science and agriculture and policy to uh, reform ways of thinking about agriculture and farming practice and uh, dry farming in the case of the California water shortage. I mean, there's so many ways in which our visual and strategic interventions in in the in the global diet, in the sustenance of that diet, in the delivery and uh, distribution of of food, and uh, and its and its uh, its sourcing. That the, the um, uh, Clement Mark, who is a designer of great renown and who is a partner in a very interesting uh, f- a suite of restaurants in California called Sugarfish, uh, a delicious, suite unbelievable, of restaurants, by delicious way. suite yep. of of well known uh, just extraordinary restaurants. Uh, has talked to me recently uh, about the complexity as a designer of just w- what the uh, supply and demand relationship is to sourcing the actual product that is then served at the restaurant. So the idea that supply and demand is something that designers have to wrap their minds around in terms of food uh, distribution and of course distribution as you rightly say has everything to do with packaging and that is very much part of the common currency of the designer so it we think that this is a subject that is really uh, ripe for discussion.
1: This is going to be a fantastic conference and a particularly great condensed into a single day for a surprisingly if you ask me low price uh, conference where uh, you will really just get uh, overstuffed, if I can use that term, uh, uh, on food and visual culture. Uh, The date is February 12th, coming up next month, the Los Angeles Theater Center. Tickets are available at taste.designobserver.com. We hope we see you there. We the people. Our Constitution begins with those three simple words.
0: Before President Obama started to address a joint session of Congress, the White House posted the State of the Union address on Medium. It's not like reading the text of the speech in the newspaper the next day, uh, at least not quite like that. There are wide margins, there's plenty of white space, and there's some dynamic infographics about things like high school graduation rates. So all to say that I think communications have changed enormously since Obama first took office, and this version of the State of the Union is just one example of how the White House has adapted to a changing media environment.
1: Yeah, and um, there's this guy, Jason Goldman, who's um, chief digital officer at the White House, who uh, talked about that strategy and said, and I quote, um, We're seven years out from President Obama's first address to a joint session of Congress in 2009 when the phrase two-screen experience would have made no sense, binge-watching wasn't yet a thing, and the White House had yet to publish a tweet. So, um, I
0: think that's so great because he really puts in context the fact that eight years is actually a really long time in terms of media. Right. I mean, the the changes that have been, you know, uh, that have come about are are really enormous. But I don't know how you read this, but I found myself immediately thinking about Charles and Ray Eames and the 1959 uh, American exhibition in Moscow, where on seven separate screens they projected simultaneously uh, something that was called Glimpses of the USA. Now, this is, of course, you know, over 50 years ago, something that uh, happened at the moment. I mean, this was the dawn of the Cold War. This was the, you know, the famous kitchen debate between Nixon and Khrushchev. This is a very particular moment in American cultural and political history, but this was in the Moscow Pavilion, right? So, you know, in the annals of the Eameses, we talk a lot about the many things they did where they were, uh, I think, quite interested in uh, bringing together disciplines with design and communication like science, technology, even politics. Uh, But I, I did a little reading about this, thinking why was this reminding me of it? I actually watched the State of the Union this week on my laptop from the White House site, and they did this kind of split-screen thing that at first looked to me like closed-caption multimedia, like here he is talking, and it it would just basically repeat things he'd said and put them in kind of a nice font with a a green background, very strange color choices, I thought, but be that as it may. Here was this thing where you listened to this very charming, elegant man, whatever your your partisan politics may be, there was this really visually compelling thing that you weren't just looking at him with Biden and the Speaker of the House behind him sitting at that funny little podium um, with the occasional cutaways to every single person in the audience wearing either red or blue, which I always find just a fashion- kind of construct that is just so weird. Uh, but to come back to this question of the Eameses and their relevance to this, for me, what, what I thought was interesting in, in in hearkening back 50 years was that the Eameses took their inspiration from the war room. So the war room or the situation room is the classic thing if you've ever watched any movie about about uh, the American presidency. It's certainly The West Wing, which was this wonderful series that ran for, I think, seven seasons that, that in which many scenes took place in the war room. This is where the president goes when there is a crisis, with his chief of staff and the chief of this and that and his strategists and his cabinet to make very quick decisions about things that normally have to do with with uh, decisions that affect the rest of the world. So what are they looking at? They're looking at screens on which there are maps, on which there are graphics, on which there is... Uh, additional information that in real time supposedly gives you information you have to make a better decision so from the high end of the president who's of course the chief decision maker to the low end of the spectator who's just watching it i think it's a really interesting visual history that that we can we can actually talk about that that i hope someone writes a book about which is how do we imbibe to to coming off of the taste conversation, how do we actually digest information that's happening very quickly? He's talking about a lot of things in what is a relatively short amount of time. And how do we make our own citizen judgments, comparative judgments about the decisions that he is making or he has made? And how does graphic design support that conversation?
1: And you know, what's I'm so interested in the fact that you brought up sort of the history of kind of situation rooms, because um, as it turns out, a lot of uh, professional architects and designers uh, during World War II, they were deployed in a lot of different ways, but there was a whole unit of them that were devoted to designing a um, state-of-the-art um, situation room for, uh, for the White House and the what was then, I think, called the War Department still, to um, really um, make those sort of decisions. I believe that unit may have been headed up by uh and I think.
0: There were it's interesting, there were actually all of these people, Buckminster Fuller, Sarin, and Henry Dreyfus. The idea that there was this kind of cabal of design high priests, as you would say, who who were actually advising the government on on really and it's it's kind of an interesting question when you think about the fact that that, you know Charles Eames thought that it was extremely stressful as it must be. What could be more stressful than being the leader of the free world and having to make a decision? What do designers do? We make complex things clear. And so here was this group of design advisors working with the uh, government at that time to figure out a way to decomplexify this information. And take what what was a, a series of hierarchical judgments out of the realm of hierarchy by just delivering information clearly.
1: Of course, when you say, you know, war room or situation room, at least what I picture immediately is Ken Adams' production design for Dr. Strangelove. Ken Adams uh, was also the production designer on uh, many of the early James Bond movies. So it just had this dark glamour that I guess uh, was clarifying on one hand, but just uh, it was a, as much a statement of, of um, the power of information uh, as information as power. You know, it's just uh, you know it's just sort of the sense of commanding all the data in one place just sort of is so alluring. And uh, you know, go, I, I think it goes beyond to a certain degree, at least in popular the, in the popular mind, just mere clarification into this sort of a, um, the control room where all the buttons to be pushed are are hidden. So um, if, as you say, the split screen approach approach of the State of the Union available for viewing on your uh, tablet or laptop, you know, is the contemporary heir to that tradition. What's striking is how, how every day it's been made to feel and how uh, accessible it's intended to be, you know, not intimidating at all, just merely clarifying. I think
0: it's so interesting to come back to this idea. I mean, the chief strategist at the White House, what a great job, first of all, that you are actually trying to be clear and concise with the information that is being released from the White House. But at the same time, you recognize, that we are living at a time when visual literacy is a core competency for every individual in in western civilization any anybody who has a smartphone is going to be looking at different kinds of opportunities for accessing the same information we're tweeting to our own constituencies we're facebooking all the information and so to the degree that that uh, you want to capture people's attention I guess the idea of a split screen makes sense. Then the question is, what is on the other side of the screen? Is it a graphic? Is it just words? Is it is it the words we're meant to take away? Is it the the, the kind of, you know, are, are is there this actually additional editorial value and incredible profound power that the White House Press Office Digital Design Division is actually editing for us what those takeaways should be. And that's actually quite interesting potential form of propaganda as well.
1: Yeah, and I think this raises a question we can talk about now and at a later date, which is uh, what, if anything, will the legacy, the design legacy of the Obama administration be? I think you can clearly see that the entire American political spectrum has taken lessons from the use of design in political campaigns where, you know, in for the 2016 presidential elections, you know, every candidate feels they have to have some sort of quote unquote logo, whether or not it's a good or bad or acclaimed or criticized, you know, the idea that you just kind of take your name, have different sign makers and consultants set it in different typefaces and throw some stars and stripes next to it is no longer acceptable. Everyone has to have, like, a lockdown-approved version that's administered with a lot of care. When Obama did that back in um, uh, his uh, first campaign uh, eight years ago, that was very nearly unprecedented and stood out in contradistinction to everyone he was running against, Democrat and Republican, in that campaign. So I think everyone's taken that lesson, and I think it'll be interesting to see if – anyone then takes that same sort of the, the eventual victor in 2016 takes a lesson and tries to come up with new and innovative and you know even visionary ways to use design media to not just win campaigns but to govern after the campaign is won
0: Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. You can find links there to things we discussed on today's podcast, including that paper on art school education in Great Britain. You can also sign up for Taste, our one-day symposium on food and visual culture, taking place next month in Los Angeles at taste.designobserver.com.
1: Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. Let us know what you thought of the show, and if there's something you want to hear us talk about next time.
0: You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash theobservatory. That's designobserver.com slash theobservatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune in to our other podcast, Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music, Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Michael.
1: Thanks, Jessica. Talk to you soon.